Welcome to another episode of Talking Payroll. In this episode, I speak with Kate Upcraft. UK-based Kate is a payroll lecturer, consultant and writer who has a huge network in the UK payroll industry. Kate's work is varied actually. It takes her from working on payroll audits and consulting projects all the way to lobbying government and industry bodies on all sorts of topics relating to payroll. Kate's also managed large payrolls in an operational capacity for Marks and Spencer and talks in this conversation about her transition from HR to payroll. Kate also shared some light for me on the complexities of the devolution of the UK and its tax implications and how payroll is coping with that. This is a really, really fascinating conversation. I really enjoy speaking to Kate. She is a huge knowledge of uh, UK payroll and I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat I have with Kate Upcraft. Kate Upcraft, welcome to the Talking Payroll podcast. Hello, Tracy. I'm very excited to have you here because um, I did hear you, as I said to you earlier, um, you know, I've, I've heard you on another podcast and I think you've got a really, really interesting story to tell. And actually, I think you've got one of the more interesting jobs in payroll globally, I think, um, you know, with working as a, a lecturer and a consultant and a lobbyist and a writer, it's, it's easy to see what an extraordinary contribution you've made to the UK payroll industry. And I'm really interested, of course, how you found your way into the payroll industry. Well, same story as an awful lot of people. Um, Not a career plan, I have to say. Um, Actually, complete naivety uh, of not understanding what I was getting myself into. I was an HR manager at a big retailer in the UK called Marks & Spencer. I was a store um, retail HR manager. And my interaction with payroll was that basically I used to send a lot of timesheets off to them once a week on a Saturday and magically a little bunch of payslips came back two or three weeks later. And when the job came up to move into head office and they were advertising for a payroll manager, I thought, well, I can do this. I've done all the HR side and there must just be a big button somewhere in London that somebody presses and magically 100,000 people get paid. So I got the job and walked in and thought, this is the most ridiculous career move I've ever made. I have no idea what is going on in here. I don't even understand the language that these people are talking at all. So it was a real culture shock as to, to what I caught myself into but I loved it from day one how funny I mean isn't it funny that even someone from an HR background and such a large employer um, just made the assumption that there was a payroll button somewhere to press Indeed. And you hear it every day of the week, don't you? Uh, Well, I certainly do when I'm out lecturing that that's the assumption that people still have, that payroll is very easy and very transactional and you don't need any skills and it couldn't be further from the truth. And it's business critical. After all, you're managing the biggest cost to any business and yet it has still, uh, I don't know whether it's the same in in Australia, but it certainly is here that we struggle to get a profile, uh, which is really, really sad given how important it is to, to employees and to their employers as well. Look, I think that's quite a global problem. We certainly share that that challenge with you um, in terms of sort of of, of Im- improving the profile of payroll and really making employers understand not just um, what can go wrong, but also how you can actually have payroll contribute genuinely to an organisation. 
Absolutely. And I try to tell people to try and reposition themselves as, and it's sad we have to get rid of the word payroll, but, you know, tax efficient reward specialist, employment tax managers. Um, I sit, and it is sort of resonant, really. I'm deputy chair of the Employment Tax Committee at the Institute of Chartered Accountants here. And it's called the Employment Tax and NI Committee. But actually, what we talk about is predominantly payroll matters. But it's not called that because employment tax sounds so much more important than payroll. And it shouldn't because it's just a title. But that says it all, doesn't it, in terms of repositioning yourself. It's a bit like when I was in, uh, to start with, I wasn't called an HR manager. I was a staff manager. Then I became a personnel manager. And then eventually I became an HR manager. But that reinvention of that um, sort of role is what we've somehow got to engineer as well, because suddenly now you're an HR business partner and that's so important. And we've got to be employment tax business partners or whatever we can call ourselves if it's what gets us a seat at the table somehow. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? We've seen that, you know, the back in the day it was the personnel manager right through to now that, you know, the talent acquisition manager kind of thing. And, and this, you know, that's, I, I absolutely agree. We, we'll, we'll have to workshop a, uh, a new name at some point and, and, and go global with that. Tell me about, tell me back to those days at Marks and Spencer. I mean, when did you, st- I mean, you were there a long time. When, when did you start and what did payroll look like then? And how did you see that payroll operation transform over that time that you were there? Right. Well, I started at 18. I didn't go to uni. I went straight into what was uh, called a junior management training scheme at, at M&S, which meant that you started off in stores. You didn't even choose what discipline. You had very general retail management training. And then after a couple of years, you specialized. And I chose to be an HR manager. Um, but um, I soon began to think that this is not really very satisfying because when you're in um, retail as an HR manager, you're basically firefighting constantly to just get enough bodies to open and the tills and cook the lunches and do all the other stuff that we used to do in MS for staff. So when I got the chance to, to move into the team and head office, um, for me, that was the right move because there was much more, I saw job satisfaction because payroll does have a beginning, a middle and an end. And even though it was really hairy each month getting to that end, we did then get to the end and you moved on to the next month. So that felt that we were actually achieving something in a way that I, I didn't get the same sort of buzz um, being in HR. But gosh, it was very different. This is 1990 that I went into that team because I'm a very old lady now. And how different my team then, basically, if they could do tax, national insurance, and about 500 ladies on maternity leave because we were predominantly a female business, that was the skill set that they needed. The, the amount of complexity that has happened in the intervening time between then and now for payroll teams to embrace here. Uh, you have Every day of the week, there will be another announcement about something that employers can do. Last week, the health secretary here decided that employers could, because auto enrolment has been such a success, and I know you've done the same sort of thing with getting people into pensions, he, they've now decided that why don't employers start deducting money from people to put into a care ISA so that that pays for, for long-term social care? Because it was so easy for employers. It's all automatic. There's nothing automatic about anything that we do, but politicians think that we can just keep turning on a sixpence and do something else for government with because we the thing is we do it really well as payroll teams and we just get on with it and employers don't vote. So, you know, they just keep pushing out more and more stuff for us to do so they can reduce the central government headcount. And you know, that's tough because we're actually in business to help the economy move forward not just to be uh, tax administrators and that's the difficult uh, dichotomy we've got really 
Well, that's it. And I think, again, I mean, we share that th- those challenges. Tell me about your lobbying. I know you do quite a bit of lobbying um, on either behalf of organisations that you work with or, and work for. Tell me about that and ha- how does that work? Okay. Well, um, when I uh, left MS, when they decided, um, the sort of back story to that is they decided to move everybody in payroll from London to the north of England because it was going to be cheaper accommodation-wise. None of us could move because we were mums and we lived in London. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of my 20-plus years there, which was, was lovely. But then I went to work for um, CIPP as they are now and I became head of policy there and that's when I first started to do a lot of work with government departments because with my big employer background I could see well if this couldn't work for us with all the resources we had at a big company how on earth is a smaller business going to make any of this work and I suppose that's when I started to not be on um, the government's Christmas card list, shall we say. Well, that's <laughs> right. That's <laughs> the problem, isn't it? You can't be friends to everyone in this you business. You can't. And, and my view is I'm there to represent a profession that's given me um, wonderful friends, uh, a wonderful op- opportunities. I'm not there to to say what the government want to hear because that would be a, doing a disservice to the people who haven't got the time to be going to consultation meetings and writing responses to documents they're trying to get on with the stuff that is being pushed out to them and also do what their businesses want so the least I can do is try and push back whenever possible and say okay if we're going to do this let's learn from what we might have done in the past let's talk to people practically you know what legislative ministers want we know how that we can make this work within software or operationally if you would only talk to us and one of the huge difficulties we have in latter years and this has probably become more and more the case in the last five plus years in the UK is that as resources in central government have retracted, so engagement with stakeholders has as well. Mm. So it's now very difficult to get to talk to them, to influence them, to make a difference because they don't want to hear the feedback because they've been given a pile of things to deliver by ministers and consultation takes time. And if you're going to do it well, you have to go back and reflect and change things and nobody has the time to change things. And of course, with Brexit, that's just a whole new ball game because Mm. they're rushing through the business as usual legislation. It has mistakes in it. There's no time to sort them out. And in it's a vicious circle of, of, of muddle at the moment, which is, is not great for any of us as employers, unfortunately. Mm. And that's the thing with the public servants that I work with in Australia are fantastic people, that, but they, and they're great public servants. It's just that they don't have any experience or expertise in what actually happens in a pay office or even in, yes. in the business more broadly. And um, so I think, that again, you know, I can I can – understand those challenges. Now, I was going to ask you about Brexit. I mean, I imagine that, you know, UK employers are currently facing some pretty big challenges at the moment, both operationally and legislatively with Brexit and also GDPR, of course, are the two things that sort of are front of mind for me. What are the biggest challenges in your view right now for UK employers? Well, it's strange. In some respects, we're we're facing a a more um, immediate challenge even than Brexit next year because the UK isn't one country anymore, particularly from our perspective. It's four countries. And increasingly Mm -hmm. now, we have so many different devolution issues to handle. That's very, very problematic if you have employees who live in different parts of the United Kingdom or if you are um, making acquisitions of um, companies in different parts of the United Kingdom. We already have, for example, Scotland has a completely different tax system. Wales will have a different tax system next April. And things like that, of course, because they are very new 
and we are so taken up with Brexit, that sort of legislative development is going down the pile when it can't be because of the amount of work it will take for the software teams to get ready for some of these things. Um, So they're all taken up with Brexit. Yes, absolutely. Depending on the type of business you are, that is very important. I was with last week, one of the groups that I sit on is all the payroll managers of the retail and investment banks in the UK, who are many of them obviously headquartered here in the city um, of London. And they are facing some very significant challenges. We were talking amongst ourselves at that meeting two weeks ago about how many of them are already moving staff to Frankfurt um, in advance of this. They're now running out of good schools, good houses to put people in because everybody's moving to Frankfurt. So all of those are problems that the payroll teams are coming up with, people who don't want to permanently move. So they want to commute and and go on a Monday, come back on a Friday, leave their families here because they don't know if it will be forever. Then you've got to work out packages and the tax implications of moving around different jurisdictions. So if you are uh, affected by the financial services potential, where are we going to uh, headquarter ourselves? That's a very big challenge for that sector. In other businesses, Brexit is just a distraction and a nuisance because it's distracting from the, the bigger challenges, which are the day-to-day, you know, I want to move somebody to Scotland and crikey, what am I going to do about that? Because I've got five rates of tax in Scotland. So it really is very, very sectoral as to what the impact of Brexit is compared to all the other day-to-day stuff that's going on. Wow. And that's and that's the thing. I mean, are software companies ready for this, for the devolution and for, <laughs> so do you think? Well, I mean, I, without, without getting, you know, without asking you to lose friends over this i mean in general are they from a brexit point of view we haven't a clue what uh, what it it might mean so we can't say we're ready because we don't know from a devolution point of view um i'm beginning to feel that there will come a time in not too distant future while the software teams will want to start selling different modules for different parts of the uk because actually why would you buy the welsh payroll module if you haven't got any employees in wales um Mm. it it, just as you wouldn't buy a french one or an australian payroll module you know for that for that same reason because it's become difficult to have sort of one size fits all um so software developers uh, are up against it because the more legislation they get the less they can do the the customer facing developments that would take products forward because they're always waiting on you know the next load of statutory stuff they've got to deliver and increasingly they're getting not enough notice we we have quite a potentially big change alongside welsh tax next april to social security here we haven't even got the primary legislation in place for it yet and we need that software signed off by christmas so that's the sort of thing that's we, you know, we're really backing up with um, decision-making. That leads the software developers to have to use a crystal ball. Some of them will guess right about what a minister wants and some will guess wrong. And, and I feel huge sympathy for them that those who guess wrong and have to patch things and have unhappy customers – it, you know, that could be anybody because it's such a difficult um, marketplace for them at the moment with so little um, certainty um, at any point about what actually is going to be the legislative position, you know, next April. Mm. And some of the policymakers are not we, – we've had quite a, a sort of shift in the UK around how the tax year operates and quite a lot of things that used to be done at the end of the year – we now can do route throughout the year, but trying to culturally get the policymakers to think, so that means you've got to tell us stuff at a different time than you used to, because we've got some employers doing things throughout the year and some employers doing it at the end of the year. You can't now tell us everything at the end of the year because those employers who've chosen a different route, that's no good to them whatsoever. 
so it, you know it's quite an educative piece as well as you say when you find they don't understand the the practical operation that we're placed within and nor the cost to vendors as well yes we've just rolling out um your version of, of real-time reporting, we call it single-touch payroll. I'm not sure what genius came up with that. Uh, oh, that's so story. insulting. <laughs> single-touch payroll is what we're, what we're calling what our – Oh, my day. Why don't we just call it RTI or, you know, seriously. Um, but the, when I speak to software vendors, I'm always astounded at the cost that this has added to their cost base. I mean, mm-hmm. and the reality is, is the only people that are going to end up paying for this is the is the clients of that software yes, vendor. Indeed. And it's all very well. It makes the tax officer's job better in the end, maybe in phase two and three. I'm not, I'm not so sure it will make uh, their job easier initially. Um, but the reality is it's going to be employers that are going to end up mm-hmm. paying the cost for the tax office to gain efficiency. And I just think that's a, you know, that's a challenging situation for these vendors. Yeah. What we've ended up, um, when we implemented RTI here in 2013, um, quite a lot of the vendors tried to swallow the cost because they didn't want to scare the horses. But then, of course, along came auto-enrolment, where we were behind mm-hmm. you, effectively, in terms of pensions. And that, which everybody thought would be easy compared to RTI, was much, much worse. So then the vendors did have to start charging or sell separate modules, which really then had a real trickle-down effect because the smaller employers, who then gave up running their own payrolls and all went to agents because it all got too difficult, then suddenly found it was hugely more expensive to engage a payroll agent because the payroll agent was having now to pass on the costs particularly of the pension module almost had the RTI development rolled up into it as well because they've got to get their costs back for for two things they hadn't really realized how expensive they were going to be so you're absolutely right it's gone all the way down and and it's very difficult to to justify costs for a payroll service to a small business because everybody thinks like you say it's single touch so there isn't much to do so why are you charging me for this um, and we have mm, this exactly. one of the things we're doing in the UK at the moment is which is about this whole change of cycle is we're stopping reporting our things like company cars at the end of the year and lots of employers are reporting them throughout the year well that's mm. also uh, very interesting from a cost point of view because a lot of accountancy practices used to charge a lot of money to do these end of year benefit returns but now when they're being done in payroll um, the employer just thinks oh well it's just part of my payroll service so I can stop paying that big chunk I used to pay at the end of the year to the accountants to do this special job it's just part of payroll now and I was with a load of accountants yesterday and saying we had to say to people you know it's the same work it's just being done in a different part of the office 12 times a year not once so you're not getting it for free Uh, but but, but it's it's not an easy sell Um, no exactly right (laughs) I mean it's it's interesting you know a lot of this is really very much an education. And I know that you write a lot. You know, you write for uh, the publication Purely Payroll. Um, how, do you, how do you determine what topics you need to write about and, and, and how do you position that? Is it really an education piece or do you write opinion pieces? What's most topical and most popular with yeah, readers? It, it's very much depends on the publication. Um, I write one particular newsletter for a client, which is aimed much more at um, smaller employers and it's much more... Um, simple how to do type um information whereas if I'm writing for um 
a software developer sometimes some of the software developers I write anonymous blogs for them but for their customers effectively they will be wanting to know what's been announced what's topical what's what's coming down the tubes um, others will want opinion pieces of do we think this is a good idea so it, it very much depends on on the client whether it's a more of a, a technical manual um, which because I also do some of those online resources for people where they're they're people who are looking up information so it's very much you know if you've got somebody going on a option leave you need to do this 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 and this um right down to the much more um i don't think this is a good idea type of opinion piece and this is why i don't think it's a good idea um yeah so it's, the, the writing is is very very interesting and needs to be fitted in around everything else but yeah you've got to be very mindful of the the tone of the client because say a lot of the stuff i write i don't have a byline for it so you're trying to write the style that is appropriate to their product and their way of engaging with their client base as well Sure. And I mean, like you say, different size employers might mm. have issues around different things. I mean, in terms of, of training and education, I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive believer in regular payroll training because it is an industry that changes constantly. And also with payroll professionals with accredited qualifications in the payroll discipline. And it's really something that the Australian payroll industry hasn't been great at delivering um, historically. We've only had uh, nationally accredited payroll qualifications for six or seven years. And I know that the UK have had you know, formal payroll qualifications for some time now, and I know that you now have a, a payroll apprenticeship. Have these assisted, or how have these assisted really, in, um, in increasing the quality of payroll knowledge across teams and payroll outcomes for employers? Yeah, I, I think it, it is very important. Um, I did, one, I think it was only the second year of the payroll management diploma when it was introduced by IPPM as they were before they were CIPP. And that is because I remember because I was pregnant with my first daughter. So that was like 23 years ago when they, oh, wow. they were available. So um, we have had qualifications for a long time. They are very much something that employers look for when they're recruiting and um, payroll people, but they're only as good as whether you keep up to date. And that's, that is the real struggle here is that there is First of all, this belief that there isn't anything that needs updating. And then it's if, if you can even get the buy into that from the senior team, it's getting the budget for the regularity of, of that. We're having this conversation yesterday at lunch, actually, because I was teaching yesterday in the north of England, uh, say, with a load of uh, payroll managers from payroll um, accountancy practices. And all of them were saying that, that the struggle they have, and these are people who actually were coming on training. So they're in the, the, the smaller minority wow. of, of how they struggle to get um, the partners in practice to understand that they need to be going on a training session and that that needs to be at least annual because of the amount of churn there is. Uh, just as it would be within the Pacific tax discipline within an accountancy practice. And I only meet the people who actually want to come on training courses. I know there are, you know, obviously thousands and thousands of both employers and agents who are not getting any training, who are just left to their own devices. And then I then I end up, sadly, in some of those going in to do an, an audit and to help out and find that people just have no idea how particular legislation has moved on, policies are wrong, because nobody has invested in keeping um, people abreast of what's going on. And that can end up with, you know, naming and shaming in terms of national minimum wage non-compliance over here, which is a big deal, disclosures to HMRC, um, all sorts of, of, of tax issues, penalties, interest, you name it. 
and ultimately yeah, same here yeah it's a, it's a big deal we have you know we have a criminal offense here in the private sector of tax evasion that 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 starts from not even assessing which people um, can be employed versus self-employed all the way through to just not correctly calculating your taxes so you know that's people going to jail at a senior level if wow. they don't get this right so it, it, it is a big deal yeah, and it's it's amazing that people don't understand the, those risks. You know, I mean, likewise, we our press uh, are very good at uh, picking up a payroll bad news story. It must sell newspapers because they love it, um, and it's just such bad bad press. It's yeah. really quite damaging to brands. So um, again, it's it's I think it's a something that we share in terms of of challenges is getting the executives to understand, you know, the, the reasoning for this, not that it's a jolly going for, you know, a payroll training yeah. for a day. I was speaking to with a client today, actually, who's had a meeting with the, the HR director and their procurement manager. And, of course, the procurement manager, all they care about is getting something for less costs than they yes. would otherwise. And even the HR manager was at pains to explain to this procurement manager that, you know, cost is important, of course. Um, we don't want to pay more than we have to. But the most important thing is actually getting the right services and the right consultants and the right products because, um, you know, the costs of fixing this, mm. you know, when you have a payroll problem are far outweigh the costs of putting it in, in the first place in a, in a compliant manner. It's interesting what you said about the, the apprenticeship too as well and, and the bottom end because that was a conversation we were also having yesterday about and um, having got um, this one particular agent said, yes, we've got a couple of apprentices starting. So I said, oh, are you training them in-house then? Because the payroll apprenticeship here is literally just getting off the ground. So we haven't got any training providers who are quite ready to go. So a lot of people are developing in-house programs. And she sadly said, oh, no, our apprentices will do what we call AAT here, which is tax technician training, um, rather than a payroll apprenticeship. So although she was going to give them some payroll training, they were coming in as tax apprentices because we haven't got quickly enough off the ground here with the, the base level qualification. We've to- focused at the top. We've got a payroll degree. We've got the management diploma. But we, we haven't really done what we needed to get people into the profession and see it as a progressive career. And, and that's that's a, something we sh- we've got wrong, I think, uh, and we should have done it yeah, much right. quicker well, I think that's important too. We've luckily here we've both both got the certificate four level, which is your practical, uh, hands-on sort of entry level plus the diploma. And I think that the reason for that is, is that you have a look at the demographics of payroll, and I'm sure it's similar than in the UK. I'm actually coming over uh, in a couple of weeks to go to the CIPP conference, so I will be interested in the demographic. But here it is it is an ageing demographic, and we mm-hmm. need to encourage younger people, smart people, to actually choose a career in payroll. And, you know, I think you can only do that through this sort of entry-level training. You're absolutely right. We've got exactly the same problem here. Um, the majority of people that I meet are older ladies who are doing um, payroll here. Whether that's because historically maybe you could fit it around caring responsibilities and children because people could do it on perhaps more of a part-time basis. Um, it, it's increasingly very difficult to do that now with the responsibilities. But yes, we, we it's very gender specific. Yesterday, I had one person out of 10 who was a guy and he wasn't a payroll. He was an HR business partner who'd come because he was um, charged now with managing payroll and had no idea what, what, what he was managing and was really concerned. But all of the rest were women um, of you know, not quite as old as me but certainly not entry level people and that's yeah is a worry 
Yeah, it's exactly the same here. Good on him for going, though, as yeah. an HR business partner because <laughs> there's not enough HR professionals that understand payroll. Indeed. So I think that's fantastic. <clears throat> Just speaking on that, I mean, in terms of someone entering the payroll industry, um, what would what tips and advice would you give someone who has, was considering payroll as a career? Um, I think you need to have broad shoulders because you are very, very rarely ever going to get somebody ringing you and say, thank you for paying me correctly this month. You will get constant though. I've got 10 pence less than I had last month. What have you done to me? (laughs) Uh, So um, it is not uh, something that you will get recognition or thanks for, but equally you will meet some great people because everybody is focused on doing a good job if you go into this profession because it is something that needs a lot of focus, a lot of attention to detail. So if you love detail and you love a different challenge every hour of the day, then payroll's for you. Um, It's very different, though, depending on, again, a conversation I keep having with people between in-house and bureau payroll. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the girls yesterday had moved from being an in-house payroll manager of quite a big um, company, had gone into bureau and said, goodness, it's it's so much more difficult here because I'm not I'm at the end of the process and the clients don't send me information and I don't feel as part of a an organization whereas some people love that they don't want the the politics of actually being embedded in a business they're quite happy to be on the receiving end of 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 lots of different client stories and client data so they they are two quite different careers doing it as an in-house role and as in a bureau role so that's something you also need to sort of bear in mind when you're thinking about where to go. I've never worked in a bureau. I, obviously, I was an in-house girl having worked um, within a big retailer. So I can understand if you move from one to the other people. Do Some people think, oh, this is great. Some just, it's not for them at all. And a very big difference between the public and the private sector here as well, um, between you know, the, the type of roles that um, payroll um, are, are in specifically. Because if you're in the public sector, you tend to be in much larger um, organisations with a lot more resources and a lot more perhaps specialisms where you will do a very um, small part of the role. Whereas if you're in the private sector, you're probably doing everything. Um, so mm-hmm. from that point of view, that might suit you, it might not. So, you know, think about what, what your skill sets are and the things that you get a buzz out of. Do you want to be a really in-depth specialist or do you want to be a generalist who can cover all the bases? Yeah, great advice. And again, very similar uh, here. It's funny what you say about being thanked for payroll. I said a few years ago to my husband, he's, he uh, was talking about his payroll manager, Jenny, and uh, and I said, well, you think about Jenny. You know, Jenny just does a payroll every fortnight. Like, no one thanks her for their payroll. But, gee, <laughs> if, if, if you'd, like you say, if you're 10 pence down, like, you'd be jumping down Jenny's throat. I said, so think about that. I said, no one thanks Jenny. Anyway, a couple of years later, he said to me, Oh, and I saw Jenny the other day, and I said, "Oh, oh, how? You know, what did you see Jenny for?" He said, "Well, I went, I went, I go down every fortnight, and I see her, and I thank her for my payroll." And I said, "Oh no, that's just embarrassing." Like he said, "But you told me no one ever gets thanked," and I said, "Oh yeah, but I think you're weird." Uh, but anyway, he was thanking this poor payroll manager for about eighteen months before I perhaps suggested that he didn't. He might take out some sort of like, so you might get some sort of HR claim on your neck. Still stalker. <laughs> exactly. Hey, look, thank you. Thank you, Kate, so much for, for talking to me today. It's been so interesting. I think you've had the most extraordinary uh, impact, as I said uh, earlier, on, on the UK payroll environment. I know you do a lot of lecturing. I know you do a lot of training and consulting. Tell me, um, 
if listeners of this podcast wish to get in touch, because we do have a lot of Australian employers and obviously employers around the world that have UK payrolls, if they want, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, just go on to, to my website. I have a very fortunate uh, marketing assistant who is my 23-year-old daughter who, uh, when she hasn't got anything to do with her full-time day job, helps me try and keep my website up to date. So um, kateupcraft.com is, is the easiest way for people uh, to see what I'm up to. It's very sweet of you to say that I, you think I've made an impact. I don't ever think that because I've, there's too much that is never going to get fixed in the sort of four or five years I've got left before I, I, I disappear and retire. But, you know, you've got to keep trying, haven't you? Because there are so many challenges out there. <laughs> I think I think the thing with someone like you, Kate, is that you're always looking forward. So you probably don't spend any time sitting back and looking back and seeing the impact that you have had because you're just always <laughs> on to that next thing. And, and exactly. I think I think the industry is the, the industry globally is is uh, it really owes people like you a, 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 a big a big pat on the back and a, a thank you. And um, so and so thank you for like I say being on this podcast. I'll put your website details. Uh, on our website as well so people can get in touch and um, yeah thanks again for being part of Talking Payroll. Not at all Tracy it was a pleasure. Hi this is Tracy I hope you enjoyed that last episode of Talking Payroll if you've got any comments or questions please email them to us at podcast at ostpayroll.com.au and look if there's anyone that you'd love to hear on this podcast or someone that you think that I just have to interview and maybe that's even you please let us know by emailing podcast at ostpayroll.com.au that's podcast at austpayroll.com.au I'm really looking forward to having you listen again next time I'm talking payroll <laughs>